Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite t-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. This week we're discussing the art and craft of communicating science. So imagine this, you're a scientist doing research. You've applied for the grant, you've got the funding, you've done the research and presented it at conferences. And your colleagues are telling you it's a really significant piece of work. You're making a bit of a breakthrough. Now it's time to write it up and get it out there to get people to read it and understand it. Now, here's the dilemma. How do you communicate what you've done so that it gets people interested, maybe even intrigued by what you've accomplished? Zoe Doubleday is a research fellow in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Adelaide, and she's been grappling with this dilemma confronting scientists when they want to write in order to communicate about their research. Zoe, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on board. Now, let's start with a traditional route uh, or route, um, the peer-reviewed science journal and what you've called the official style of writing. Just tell us a little bit of what this is all about. It's a style we're all generally trained as scientists to emulate right from the beginning of our careers as undergraduate students. And it's generally a style that's it's very, it's trained, it's based all around objectivity um, to be precise and accurate, which we do want to be as scientists. So definitely not advocating for that. We're advocating for that. It's also based on being very dry and technical and impersonal. So the reader, so there's no sense of reader engagement or that this prose was written with the reader in mind or someone has to understand it and absorb that information. It's very removed and it's because scientists, they want to be objective and that's how they're trained. So they feel to be objective. You have to be dry and technical at the same time. Mm. But I believe you can be objective, but you can write much more interesting and creative writing. Now, just to let people know, a peer-reviewed journal is one where you submit your research that you've written up and your peers basically assess it in order for it to get published? Uh, that's right. So that's right. So when we write our grants and our, do our research, what we're then required to do is to write a paper and that's tells you the results, tells you the story, tells you what happens, tells you so what's wrong with it, what's good with it. 
And when we write that paper, we send it off to a scholarly publishing company. One of the most fa- more famous ones is Nature. And then it goes out to what we call peer review, where it's sent to an, uh, three or four scientists, other scientists in that field around the world, where they assess that. Mm. And then um, it may get rejected or accepted. Some journals are much harder to get into others. And then once it's accepted, then we can sort of validate that research. And we're very much... Um, Scientists are very much validated by the number and quality of their publications. They literally keep us employed. Mm. And uh, let me just quote something back. This is you. You've said this, the kind of writing that, that appears in these journals is, and you've hinted at this already, bloated, dense, and dry. And uh, you're advocating something very different. You say that scientists should be reading and collecting good writing and that they should learn from it. And briefly, could you tell us just a few of the criteria that you see that would be making up good this good writing? So I think bringing the personality back into science writing, that we are humans at the end of the day writing, and there's also humans reading the writing. And humans are very much drawn in by a sense of story and narrative. Our brains work better, they process that information better rather than just lists of facts, which we're more trained to do as scientists to write there. We sort of glaze over facts. Mm-hmm. So that's one way, putting a sense of story. We advocate you can still be objective and put a story into your research. Another way is to be more creative with your writing style to make it more interesting. Um, some scientists might be very wary of that because, again, it might be more, you might be sensationalising the story, but we're not advocating that either. But I think one of the key parts in science is we need to value writing more. So we look at data and we do quantitative analyses, we crunch numbers, and all those methods we use evolve and get advanced. But we haven't advanced our writing style or the way we communicate for so long. It's sort of entrenched in this culture mm. and this mindset. And if you step out of that, you kind of get like, oh, you can't do that. That's just not proper or not not appropriate. So I think a key thing is to put more value, particularly how we teach it, and um, to the next generation in in writing. I wanted to ask you, maybe this is not an appropriate question, but I wanted to ask you anyway, that uh, is there some examples for, exam- for, for listeners and, and me uh, where we could go to get a sense of this, this good writing? Are there, are there books or things that, uh, that you would direct us to where we could get a sense of, of how the writing enhances the research in some way? So there is not... Uh there's good examples of science writing, particularly in books. They're more um, designed for a public audience and they're written by, you know, experienced writers. They're very good, and there could be scientists in their own right as well. In the peer-reviewed literature, uh, there are good examples of science writing, but they're quite rare and mm. hard to find. Mm. Often, mm. if you start reading a scientific paper, they're just... They're quite overwhelming to yes. read, yes, even seen. for scientists who are yep. trained for years to read them. Yep. And with students who go, oh, my God, how can I read that? Yes. You know, but, so it, mm. it is, is it not that common maybe starting reading more uh, science blogs and things like that 
or other news outlet, outlets like The Conversation can provide a gentler means yes. of good writing. But actually in the, the, the pre-reviewed literature, which is the first face of science before it's translated into other forms, it's quite hard to find good writing. It mm. does exist, but it's, you've got to search for it. Have you got have you got a, a book that you've recently read that uh, you mentioned some some authors that have written I guess science based yeah. books that we could we could have a look at I I'm just you know yeah, if you've so, got some some uh, recommendation yes so books by Helen Sword who's a literary scholar she writes about improving the readability and engagement of academic research um, academic writing so not just science across arts and as well mm. so some of her books. Uh, interesting reads. Steve, Stephen Pinker, who's a very well-known linguist and psychologist from Harvard University, he's written a very thought-provoking book about how we communicate and writing. Mm, mm. And well, those are, those another are, book... Yes, go ahead. Yeah, another book um, by Scott Montgomery is about um, communicating science. His is focused on science, particularly the first couple of chapters. is about how we can be more creative and elegant in our writing. Now, you've mentioned the uh, changing the writing culture of, of science, and uh, you say teaching is very important. I'm, I'm assuming that you're, you're thinking particularly about students going through and postgraduate students as well. How do you think that would, how do you sort of incorporate that into the teaching process? We, I think we can incorporate it more as science undergraduates, well, in my experience, in my area that I've worked in, that science um, undergraduates aren't necessarily encouraged to um, take up um, writing skills, but even knowing a huge proportion of our working lives is writing, much more than people would think. Mm. Uh, And so why, you know, things like maths and that are critical, there seems to be this less weight on writing. So we could encourage students more to take up writing, but I think we need to develop our own mm. courses in science writing and communication. Now, some of them do exist, and there's some examples where some universities are doing some great things, but I think they're, at this stage, niche rather rather than widespread. It's interesting, uh, just in my own observations, that the, there tends to be a split, I guess, between what, what are called the humanities and, and the sciences, the, particularly the hard sciences. And I guess what yeah. you're really saying is that that split really needs to be, uh, that binary thing needs to be joined together a bit more. And that's exactly what my colleague and I, Sean Connell, here at the University of Adelaide are trying to do is try to that split is is very is quite is deep administratively and um, physically as well mm. and we want to work with people in the humanities who've developed um, a lot of this theory and the work that we could bring into science but it shows that these two divergent disciplines are actually intertwined and complementary and we could work a lot more together mm, mm. that's but, what we're trying to do yes now. Very interesting, and and also uh, you you have a caution. You you say that it's you need to create interesting writing, and I think you've hinted at this already. But you need to be careful when you bend the writing, not to bend it too much towards sensationalism. What you, what are you getting at there? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think our culture of writing has stemmed from fear is too much of a strong word, 
but this fear of but not being objective. So we have facts and we don't want to like put our personal emotions in them and make them what they're not. We just want to state the facts. And so there's this sort of fear, aversion to creativity and interest in writing because we're worried we might be sensationalist and then that's not good science. We might get, you know, told we're sort of overselling or just selling ourselves to the media if we do something like that. But what um, Sean and I are saying that we, and we show examples in our different works, is you can be objective and more creative and engaging. You can have it both ways. But we're not advocating to be sensationalist and overstating the facts. Mm, you're not you're not tabloid journalism kind no, of approach to, to science. Truth world or whatever they want to call it now. Yes. The people are more aware of just making up things to sell a story. Mm. So we're still very along those lines of you need that absolute objectivity and accuracy. But at the end of the day, if nobody reads it, your science doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I think I thought the uh, the point you were making about reading blogs is a is a really good strategy, and and I th- obviously that's a place to, in a way, experiment with your writing and and allow allowing people with a uh, who are doing science to to uh, kind of expand on their horizon their writing and writing horizons. Yes, yeah, so I think that can be a gentle. Uh, way, I think certainly the primary literature, if you want to go to the coalface and see no other interpretation, that's where to go. But as I said, they're hard work, even for people in their specialist fields. I struggle to understand a lot of papers, for instance, in my field. But hmm. reading uh, a lot of scientists more and more are engaged in social media and write blogs, or there are science-focused or academic-focused news outlets, like The Conversation, which... Um, break down, I read, I get a lot of science news from those sites which sort of break down the information and have it in a much more digestible form. Mm. And just in, in conclusion, do you think your uh, advocacy, I guess you could call it that, is has there been much of an uptake in Australia or, or even more broadly, do you think there are lots of people thinking along these lines? Yes, we've been overwhelmed. We've given talks about this nationally and internationally and we've published peer-reviewed papers on the topic and we've been overwhelmed by the response in it positively wanting this change because people are frustrated, scientists are frustrated. They've been sort of feel like they have to write a certain way mm. and then nobody can read it and it's hard to understand. But there's this general cult, old-school culture but that you can't do that. There's some people that don't agree with us that are more um, consistent with the traditional way of of writing, but that that was expected too. But mm. how this has generated lots of opinion has been really fascinating to see, bigger than we thought it would be. Well, I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown, Zoe, and all the best with your work in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for your interest. And I was talking there with Zoe Doubleday. She's a research fellow at the School of Biological Sciences in Adelaide University. And we'll put her discussion up on the Communication Mixdown website. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. 
I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Communicating with science, that's our focus this week on Communication Mixdown. And communicating science and science research is not just about accessible and interesting writing. It's also about informing and influencing decision makers and public opinion leaders. Mark Quigley works in the area of earthquake science at the University of Melbourne, and he says that scientists of all disciplines need to better understand and improve on how they can communicate their research, especially to influential decision makers. Thanks for your input tonight on the show, Mark. My pleasure, John. Now, I want to start with a very direct, let's call it a a, a direction-finding duck kind of question to get us grounded. Scientists communicating research to decision-makers and opinion leaders, give us some examples of who these scientists would be that we're talking about and who are the decision-makers. Well, actually, it could be a diverse range of scientists from uh, university academics to uh, scientists in industry to scientists at uh, government uh, research institutes, places like uh, CSIRO and Geoscience Australia. And decision-makers can be anyone from you and I. I mean, we make decisions, and some of the decisions we, we make uh, either directly or indirectly are influenced by science, or they can be right to the top of the food chain, so uh, the leaders of our, of our nations. Um, and so we're really trying to grapple with an exceptionally challenging problem, you know, defining who the scientists are, defining who the decision-makers are, uh, and then trying to, trying to condense that into some sort of meaningful story is, 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 is often very challenging. Now, you've written that all scientific research is subject to varying degrees of uncertainty, but the way this uncertainty is communicated could sometimes be used as a way of, in a sense, making or delaying policy decisions. And you give the example, the one that I picked out was the one on climate change. Could you just give us briefly some way of understanding what you're getting at here? 
Well, yeah, okay. So I think one of the first things that we need to appreciate is that science is but one of many inputs that goes into any sort of high-level decision-making on any given problem. And so I think sometimes scientists have uh, a tendency to be a bit naive about the importance of their research in a certain decision. Sure, it is. it, it, it can be hugely important, but there are a lot of other things that, say, for instance, a, po- a politician might need to consider uh, before... Uh, making a decision. And sometimes those decisions will align with the prevailing scientific evidence, and sometimes they won't. Um, and so in the context of uh, what, I, what we're talking about in the article and what we talk about in a lot of cases is uh, scientific uncertainty is often viewed as this kind of um, thing that uh, uh, certain decision makers could perhaps capitalize on, like saying, you know, the science is uncertain and therefore we shouldn't act on this, or therefore, you know, the status quo is fine. And we've seen that play out in the in the climate change space um, in Australia quite mm-hmm. prolifically, you know, mm-hmm. um, with, 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 with Abbott still and others, you know, arguing that the science is uncertain. And of course, all science, every single bit of science we do is is uncertain to some extent, but we have uh, very good ways of, of characterizing that uncertainty, and I think we just need to get a little bit better about sort of unpicking, you know, what what we are sort of highly confident about, even though there may be some statistical uncertainty about that, versus things we actually have no idea about, and I think sometimes decision makers try to take the statistical uncertainties and put it into the camp of, therefore, we don't know anything. And that's kind of what we're talking about there. And you make a number of recommendations to improve science communication with decision makers. Um, Tell us a little bit about those recommendations. If you had to pick the top one, what would it be? Well, I think uh, a lot of a lot of these communications are somewhat fortuitous. You know, like uh, there might be a major event that all of a sudden puts your field of interest in, on the on the national stage. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of scientists do grapple with is is getting into that inner circle and sort of if you have a if you have a real key science message that you feel is not being heard, how do they go about how you go about doing that? And and what some of our research shows is that. Um, Obviously, in, in the process can be quite hierarchical and closed, and there can be multiple steps between, for instance, a scientist and a, and a decision maker. But we're talking about exploring alternative pathways. And my personal experience is, for instance, if I have science that might be relevant in a decision-making space, but it's not being considered, is I'll try to uh, write popular media articles on that bit of science. And then, for instance, an interested stakeholder might read one of those articles Mm. and say, hang on, you know, I'm in the process right now where decisions are being made, and that bit of science there seems relevant to what that decision-making is, and maybe I should try and solicit that science or or do things to ensure that that science uh, gets a priority role in that decision-making. So there's a fair amount of strategy. There's a fair amount of uh, market research that needs to be done by scientists. They need to be quite savvy about about uh, these processes. And, and if they're not, then then uh, I think there are a lot of science that can be quite relevant, maybe may not may not hit its mark. It's very interesting that you mentioned the things about uh, write, writing someone like yourself, writing an article and trying to get into the media. Are the guest that we just had on before you, Zoe, Doubleday was talking about this sort of thing about scientists trying to write in a, in, a, in a meaningful and accessible way. And I think what she was sort of saying in a way was that not all scientists can, can do this. And I, I, say, I, I assume that this would be part of the strategy that you would, you would be rolling out in relation to decision makers as well. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I guess I would say to that point, it, it is it is the obligation of the scientific, scientific community to communicate in whatever medias they may be more comfortable with, or or to just get better at communicating in the in media that they're um, being asked to communicate in. So uh, I think that there needs to be some ownership over that issue, rather than uh, than saying scientists aren't good communicators. But um, of course. You know, there's also a whole bunch of alternative ways in which this can work. I mean, all the way from the scientist writes the article and hopes to get it published somewhere to the scientist just uh, answers the phone when it rings and gives a few a few carefully couched comments. And, and, and the, uh, the media, the journalist or whatever takes responsibility for telling the story. So there's all sorts of options. You know, a lot of scientists have got personal websites. Some of them tweet about their science. Uh, some of them do podcasts. Some of them do all sorts of things, and, mm. and, and it's it's all good stuff. Mm. Um, but I think probably we just need to um, perhaps be some somewhat strategic about the sort of things we do, especially when it comes to uh, trying to reach decision makers. Mm. One of the things that I was interested in 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 what you what you were talking about was that there are so many different scientific disciplines that what needs to be arrived at is some kind of language where uncertainty and risk are kind of shared across disciplines. Yeah, I mean, we have we have basic things, of course. Um, you know, like, for instance, statistical uncertainties about a, a mean, um, you know, where we have large amounts of data and we're, we're analyzing it in these ways. And, I mean, the, the thing is, is that scientists is, science is getting increasingly and increasingly specialized and increasingly, increasingly uh, statistical in its analysis, um, higher and higher levels. So I think that we get a bit of diversity at, at, at that end. But the other thing I think is, is, is that there's a lot of other different forms of uncertainty. Um, there, there are things we don't know, and there are, there are uncertainties in the way we communicate. So, for instance, if I say something is, is, is low or high, what does that mean to you? If I don't mm. objectify it in some sort of concrete way, you might take something that I think is low, and uh, like, for instance, your chance of being killed in an earthquake is 1 in 10,000, and you might all of a sudden think that that's incredibly high. So uh, we need to kind of understand all levels of uncertainty, both in, in our raw data and the way we analyze and write it up, but also in the way we might communicate that across different forms of media. Finally, Mark, I just wanted to point something else out to, to you in relation to what you wrote. You, you've talked about scientists having a lot of variability in the way decision makers provide documentation for the scientific advice that they give to the decision makers. And you've said, and this is was interesting for me, you said that the public and the media have a role to play in, in a sense, overseeing this kind of documentation or, or, or yeah, what, what are you getting at there? Well, I think, you know, we, ha- we have to understand that we can sometimes as individuals feel very small in our, in our place in the universe. But, you know, the, the way that, the way that uh, media outlets are under pressure these days, the way that so many big, uh, big newspapers and, and media outlets don't have anyone with science specialty or any of these sort of things largely relates to our, our appetite for the way we want to take in our news and the way and the things that we're interested in. So the reason that, um, you know, uh, a celebrity uh, getting a nose job gets uh, millions of hits, mm-hmm. whereas, a, you know, mm-hmm. a, an amazing scientific finding might get uh, mm-hmm. one one hundredth of that is 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 not uh, necessarily a newspaper's fault or a, or a decision maker's fault or anything like that. It's it's basically our communal appetite for news. And so 
Uh, I'm not I'm not preaching. I'm not on a soapbox or anything here. I'm just saying that um, mm. we all kind of fit into this this picture, and so we all have some responsibility for the things we we uh, we consume. And personally, you know, some of these morning uh, news mm. programs in Australia, I just I find them terrible. Yes. So I just I really want to get a little bit more meat out of my news, you know, and I sure. just don't know that there's as many options that uh, are available for me at the moment. Look, that's probably a really good place for us to leave it. So I want to thank you so much for being on Communication Mixdown tonight, Mark. Sure thing, John. My pleasure. And I was talking there with Mark Quigley from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and he was talking about how scientists can make their research more effective when they communicate with decision makers, especially key decision makers. Well, that's all from Communication Mixdown this week, and thanks to our guests Zoe Doubleday and Mark Quigley and links to both their lengthier discussions about science communication will be available on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website, along with a podcast of this show. We'll be back again next Thursday.